0: Lord, I want to thank you again for letting us gather together as believers here. We can gather freely in this place uh, without fear of persecution, without fear of giving up our lives as we do this. Um, And I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, that you have placed me here. Um, that you've given me this ability, Lord, um, that, that your love and kindness um, has shown through in that way for me and for my brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, I think we all echo uh, a big thank you that we can gather here uh, freely in, in worshiping you and in sharing together in the truth of your word. Um, but in that, I also want to always be reminded that as I worship and uh, openly proclaim your word here without real fear of death, that there are brothers and sisters uh, around the world, uh, quite possibly even now, who who, as they worship and uh, dig into your word, uh, they do it full well knowing that uh, someone could find out. And that it could require of them their lives. So I, I just want, as as I as I preach, as we gather together, freely and openly, I want us to be able to thank you that we can, and I want us to also realize that there are those that it may cost them their lives. Uh, and and I want I want to echo what Scripture says about them: that this world is not worthy of them. Um, as we open up tonight, this text, these, as we start waiting. Lord, as we start wading deeper and deeper into uh, chapters nine, ten, and eleven, I just want to ask you that um, any false ideas that might would be in my mind that you would um, that you would remove those through the grace and mercy of your Holy Spirit, and that uh, as we dig through the Scripture, that your Scripture would make itself known through the working of your Holy Spirit in our in our minds and our hearts. Uh, just let the truth shine forth from the pages of this book. I pray that you would humble us by your word. I pray that you would shape us and form us as we uh, dig into your word. I pray that we would be a people who would be um, excited about having the opportunity to spend time on the things that you have placed in this book, that we would not be the kind of people who take it for granted, Lord. If we, if 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 any among us have come here tonight, uh, and and they are maybe just here out of obligation, or or here out of you know fear of maybe somebody's going to just say something to them if they if they weren't, I, I just want to to tell them you're you're welcome here. Um, Anyways, and and I want to say to them also, uh, open this book up and see how marvelous the God is that has saved us, Um, and that that you are not something, um, and our knowledge of you is not something to be placed on a shelf or to be thought of one day a week, but that we should find each and every day of our lives that we are marveling at the glory of who you are and what you are doing. And I I pray, Lord, that as I preach tonight, that you would, uh, in whatever way, uh, use me in fulfilling that truth, Lord, that we would, as we dig into your word, marvel at who you are and what you've done and what you are continuing to do in us. I thank you for Christ, and I thank you for the cross. It is for his name and for his glory to all people in all places. Amen. Alright, so chapter 9, we're going to be, the new scripture for tonight is going to be 6 through 13. I want us to reflect a little bit on the opening. We covered the opening last week, partly because I didn't want us just to skip through it to get to what you would probably consider some of the meatier passages of text, and Also because I think the way that Paul opens this up gives us some insight into what Paul's thinking and where Paul's going to be going for the chapters to come. So I want us to just kind of open up tonight, just in chapter 9, verse 1, and just kind of read through and reflect on what we saw last week. So, Chapter 9 of the book of Romans, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. Again, let us see that there's three things here that Paul is kind of invoking to show the trustworthiness and the truth of what he's saying here. First, he's saying I'm speaking where? Out of my own thoughts? Out of my own mind? No, he's, I'm speaking the truth in who? In who? in Christ. Secondly, I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness. So first, invoking from where he's speaking this truth. Second, invoking that his conscience, his spirit is also in line with this truth. Bearing witness, where? In the Holy Spirit. So in Christ, in his own conscience, in his own spirit, and in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So the truth that we're going to be seeing here in 9, 10, and 11, I want us to understand that Paul doesn't approach these truths lightheartedly, that Paul doesn't approach these truths in a way to be like, I'm in, you're not, deal with it. Right, like this is not a truth that Paul's like pulling this cord out and like, boom, boasting there. Right, like he's he's not he's not this is not the purpose for which he's bringing this out. This is not why he's bringing this deep truth of Scripture to bear here. Paul is not using it as a means to say I'm elect. Deal with it. Right. So I want us to get that as as he opens this up. What is he filled with? What is he filled with sorrow and what? Unseeking anguish or or unceasing anguish. So, So what I want us to get here is that Paul's sorrowful for who? The Jews... Now, here's what I want us to get here, because we're going to get into some things. We're going to talk about some ideas tonight. So the Jews, are we talking Jews in some, like, ethereal, up-in-the-air group of people bubble that has no names, no faces, no lives, no reality? No, of course not. When I say it that way, you're like, clearly no, clearly no. What are we talking about? His brothers, his kinsmen. People that he knows by name. This is a real thing. There has been a real rejection of Christ by the people of the Jews, by his very people, and this breaks his heart. Church, do we get this, that he has broken over his people and their rejection of their Savior. I want us that's why we spent that time on it last week just focused in on that because I want that to I want that to weigh on us and I want us to get this too. I want us to get Paul says there's there's sorrow and unce- unceasing anguish, right? Let's look at the text. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So this is not even a thing where Paul's dealt with it and put it away, right? If Paul said I've got I've got a deep sorrow. Then we could say, well, Paul had a deep sorrow, but once he came to understand the truth of this, it lightened the burden for his kinsmen, his brothers who have turned from Christ. But that's not what he's saying. Not only does he have a deep sorrow, but he has an anguish that is unceasing in his heart. For who? For his brothers, who have what? Rejected Christ, rejected the gospel. He's burdened over these people, right? He's spent some time digging and thinking about what does it mean? Because as a Jew, I imagine he's standing back and he's thinking all these promises that I grew up loving, grew up cherishing, grew up looking forward to. Me and my brothers, I imagine as he was in whatever the, they called the seminary of the day with the Jews, as he's there with them and they're talking about Scripture and they're dream, dreaming about the promises that God's put forward, and then the large majority of them now have come to reject Christ. This burdens him and continues to burden him. He has a burden for who? The lost. Does does Paul here tell us truly in Christ by his conscience in the Holy Spirit that he has a genuine, sincere burden for the lost? Does he? Yes. Now I want to ask you another question. I want to ask you another question. Is his sorrow, is his burden for the lost any less than the God who saved him? Is it? Is it? Because as we as we step into these chapters, right, there are going to be places along the way where you may very well think that if you reflect back on the opening of chapter 9, that Paul has more concern for his lost kinsman than God himself. And I want to tell you, if you think that's the case, you are a fool. Exactly. Exactly. High five, man. Awesome <laughs> That's cool. That's the first time. What? Hmm? Can, Can you have a sip of my water? <laughs> Can I help you
1: with that? Hmm? Can
0: help you with that? I'm not sure what he said. <laughs> Can I you with that? Help me with that? With Oh, with this yeah you wanna you wanna read it yeah. let's do it, all right, I want you, y'all are gonna be blown away right here, chapter one now, here's what you're gonna have to overlook all my scribble okay don't don't read my scribble, they may throw me out, <laughs> all right, chapter nine verse one, read through one through five there i'll 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 be like when it's time to stop, all right, go for it, y'all listen, and I would like for y'all to follow me through this. All right, nine one. I am speaking
1: the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My,
0: my, go for it. I'm giving you the mic.
1: My conscience. My conscience bears, bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and. unceasing anguish 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 in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed
0: accursed
1: accursed, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers my kinsmen According to the flesh, they are Israelites, Israelites. and to them belong the adoption, adoption the glory, the covenant, yeah. the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them. Belongings, the patriarchs. That's a tough one. Patriarchs <laughs> and? and the and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Amen.
0: Good job. Thank you. That was, Hey. Don't forget your don't forget your fan. Thank you. You are very welcome. Thank you. I appreciate your assistance on that. That There's a first time for everything. So I want us to remember the high esteem that Paul gives to his brothers and his kinsmen. And as we dig through in the weeks to come, I do not want us to think that a mere man can love men before, before or greater or to a higher degree than God himself can love men, right? As we dig into this, As we raise questions concerning Scripture, what we as believers, those who have been redeemed by God, those who were once enemies, now made His friends, should never do, is question His character. So as we dig into this, I want us to ask questions. As we dig into this, I want us to think, As we wade in, I want us to wade in deeper and deeper. But I never want us to question the God who has saved us and who He is or His intentions for what He's done because He alone is righteous. He alone is holy. He alone is worthy of worship. Amen? So as we dig in, hold to that. I want you to ask questions. I'm going to ask questions along the way, right? As I dig into this, as I've been preparing for this passage of text, for this run of scripture that we're going to be getting into Chapter Nine, I ask questions every time I hit it, and it humbles me beyond words for you, right? So I'll, I want us to I want us to get as we press into this that we're going to run into places that that in all likelihood. We're going to be like, I I don't know that I could ever understand that. And I want us to press on still. I want us to wrestle still. Never anywhere will we question the character of God. Are you all with me? Are you all ready? you all got your waders on. Right? You got them on? All right. Chapter 9, verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has fell. So Paul here, burdened, has an unceasing anguish for the lost, knowing that now that Christ has come, a large majority of his brothers, his kinsmen, have rejected the very one that the promises had been pointing to all along truth to this day they reject Christ to this day and Paul wants to say it is not as though God's word has failed and how does he do this how does he show this to be true The how and why and why here, why now as we approach these words of predestination and election because they're they're words that are in the book, we should not avoid them. These are the questions that we should ask about them. Why here? Why bring it up now? What is the purpose that you're trying to tell me in bringing these truths up now, right? Why now, Paul? And he wants to show you As a believer that God's Word cannot fail, has never failed. That God's purposes and plans that He has set forth will come to completion. When we read in the book of Revelation and we see every tribe, every nation, every tongue, it cannot fail. But, if God had failed in one promise, God had failed in fulfilling any promise, then we would be right to question, would he fail us in this hope? So Paul wants to assure us that he cannot. And he shows us in this mystery that is God's election throughout the history of his people. And then... Let's dig into this. So we're going to look a couple of places. If you can see my Bible here tonight, there's, a, there's quite a few little earmarks that I've got. We're going to look at each. He quotes a lot of Scripture. In this short little passage from uh, 6 through 13 here, he's going to quote a lot of Scripture. And we're going to look at each and every one of them. And we're going to look at them in the context for which uh, they're, they're given there. And ask the questions along the way. Why is Paul using this particular one? What is he trying to get across with this particular passage? So, the first thing he says when addressing the question, so all that he's going to be dealing with in the future is addressing this question. It is not as though God's word has failed. And then he says, what? For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel. Here's the truth that Paul has come to understand after coming to Christ, is that not all of his brothers are Israel. So what I want us to see Paul doing here is taking Israel from a nation, this small nation that spoke a tongue and and looked a certain way and had a certain culture, that he's going to be extracting it back, spiritualizing it slightly, Asking the question, well, now who is Israel? And the first way that he does that is to say, not all Israel are Israel, right? And he's going to show this. By showing examples from the Old Testament where what he's, here's what Paul sees. As Paul looks and he sees what's taken place in his day, in his lifetime, this great falling away. Paul's looking back through the scripture that he knew so well. And what he comes to discover is that this is not the first time that this has happened. But the way that it has happened this time is unlike any time before. Right? So the truth that I want us to be looking for, right? the hints that I want to place out there for you as we're digging through this, is that if we look at these examples that Paul is going to give us, we see an ever-tightening funnel where all people, the selection of Abraham. Not all of Abraham's children, but who? In who are Abraham's children now? Ishmael? Are they named in Ishmael? Because Ishmael was the first. Do we call Ishmael's children the children of Abraham? Then who? Isaac? Well that's if you were to go back, then that's a little bit countercultural, right? It tends to be first child. Right? What do we, what do we find with Isaac? Isaac has twins. Jacob and Esau. Who comes first? Esau, and on his heels, quite literally on his heels comes Jacob, and what does God do? When does God do it? When does God do it? Let's look at the text. For not all who are descendants from Israel belong to Israel, and not all the children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now here we're going to flip back to Genesis chapter 21. Uh, We're going to look at the last part of verse 12. This is where this passage of text is being quoted from here. I'll give you all a moment to get there. So kind of give you a little bit of context here. Uh, y'all all know the story, so I don't have to go too deep into it. If you were to not know the story, get with me afterwards or go read the book of Genesis. Um, after the creation stuff, it, it kind of quickly gets to Abraham and all of his, right? So um, here we find the first son... By man's efforts, Ishmael being sent away. Verse 12. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And what does Abraham do? They send this woman off. Right? Right? They send this woman and her child off. Now, before we think that God's being too harsh, I want to go jump to to chapter 2120 really quickly and and read this. And this is talking about Ishmael. And God was with the boy. Right? Who was with Ishmael? God was with Ishmael. God's got a purpose in what he's doing. God is not arbitrary in what he's doing. I want you all to understand that. That the purposes and ways of God are not arbitrary. God has a very distinct purpose and plan set out. Right? So let's go back. So he chains the couple together really quickly there. So in chapter 9 of. Uh, Romans, where we left off through Isaac, shall your offspring be named? This means that it is not of the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. What is this trying to tell us? Right, That it is not man's efforts or by man's efforts that God will fulfill his promise. Can y'all follow me here? Do y'all understand that it is God who fulfills his promises? And this is why I'll say things like, if, if every single one of you, and, and I say this knowing that it can't happen because God dwells within you, but if every single one of us decided that we were just going to test this whole thing and say, let's see God save the world without us, he'd save the world. Do you know what he would do? He would save the world through you anyways. <laughs> Right? This is the work of God that dwells in us, right? So that God changes us from people who were enemies of Him to people who follow and run with Him, right? This is the work that God is doing, right? It's God's work. It's His way, His purposes, His plans, not by the efforts or strivings of man. So that no one could say that Christ was theirs Partly because of what they had done. Abraham could not say that. Because it was God's promises. Isaac could not say that. It was God's promises. God sought these men out. God sought these men out and made promises to these men. There were many other men in the world. Why not them? Because it pleased God to choose Abraham. It pleased God to make promises to him. It was God's pleasure. It was God's working out. I want, man, I want to be able to talk in this language without you thinking that I'm making every one of you puppet. Right? I want to be able to talk in a language that is freeing to us all because we know that God is in control. Without the, f- I can look around the room and I can see the concern on your eyes and in your minds. I'm not making you out to be pulpits. I'm not. When I say that it's by God's work, by God's promise, by God's power, you should praise His holy name because if it was by your efforts, do you know what would happen? You would mess it up absolutely and completely. And in any one place where you thought you'd stepped ahead, you would boast and brag so much. Yet it has pleased God to do it through men who were not worthy. In ways that were not imaginable. So that at the end of the day, as Christ was raised, praise be only to God in heaven. And the Lamb who is worthy. Slain for His people. This, all of this language that I am using about God's purposes, God's plans, God's designs, is so that you stop thinking about how you can do. Or how you can't. I want you to be free in the truth of what's coming in this text. Not questioning the character of God. Do not question the God who's saved you. He loves you. Do not think that Paul has burned more for his people than God for his people. What a foolish thought to think that the God who would teach us to love would love less than we. Let's, Let's not go there. Let's not... Think those thoughts. Let's understand that it's by God's power, God's plan, God's purposes for His glory and the exaltation of Christ in glory. Right? This is the thing that's working out here. And this is why when we can rest in this, we can trust that God will not fail us. That His Word will not fail. Because though man may fail in everything that he does, God cannot fail even when He uses those men. Right? Like that's an... Amazing truth to grasp at. An amazing truth for us to grasp at. This means, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. What is the promise concerning? Ultimately, in an ultimate sense, what is the promise concerning? Christ. The promise is ultimately, in an ultimate sense, concerning Christ. When we get down in a little bit, down towards the end of the sermon for tonight, and we look at God's purpose of election, I want you to know, in the most ultimate sense, God's purpose of election is His glory in the exaltation of Christ. That is the ultimate sense for which we look and we say, what's God's purpose in election? It is His glory in the exaltation of Christ. Right? Simple takeaway. Let me say it again. His glory in the exaltation of Christ. Let all other questions that we have fall by the wayside to that truth. That God is going to get glory through the Son that He sent that died and is redeeming people for Himself for eternity. That will be true. I want us to get that. I want us to understand that. Though we may have many questions, I want that to be the central Focus. So, but the children of the promise, these children of the promise ultimately led to Christ. And ultimately, many of these people that were part of this thing all along seem now to have fallen away. And Paul is using this discourse here to show why that should not take us by surprise. Because though Isaac was second, God chose This means that it is not the children of the flesh. Verse 9. For this is what the promise said, and this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. So let's flip over that briefly. Chapter 18, verse 10 of Genesis. Chapter 18, verse 10. We're going to be reading a little bit. I'm going to read 10 down through 14. Um just to kind of get us an idea of what's going on here. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So what do you think is going to happen when he returns in a year? He's going to have a son. Now I want us to think about, was there any way this doesn't happen? Seriously though, Y'all know what has to happen for people to have babies, all right? We're adults. We can at least step into the PG area. Y'all know what takes place? Well, some of us are not adults. Don't ask your parents. <laughs> you know what? Could he have been like, let's test this thing out? No, he's a dude. <laughs> and what did I say last week? You can't deny who you are, right? You can't. It's going to happen, man. <laughs> going to happen whether God has to send a spirit of passion on you or what. You're going to have a son in a year. Why? Because God said so. Period. Period. I'm guessing, just because I, I know how men work, that probably Abraham didn't have to be convinced too much. Right? I'm guessing that probably uh, Isaac neither. None of them. They're men and they're fallen men. So, the Lord said, Surely I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door behind them. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. That could pose problems, but not for God. The weight of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, "Uh, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall you have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah life and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Do you think, do you think that maybe, possibly, in the way that God has set this whole thing up, that he wanted to show us the truth of these kind of things? Right? Do you you think that he wanted to, like, let's stack the deck against him, and he wins. Right? Right? Like, you can't have kids anymore, but oh yes, you can. If God tells you next year you're having a son, do you know what you were having? Now, you don't have to go get the sonar thing. You're having a son next year when he returns. Do you know what he's going to do? He's going to return, and you're going to have a son. And I want to ask you, church, is anything too hard for the Lord? Absolutely, absolutely not. Nothing is too hard for the Lord. Ten. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. I want to pause there for a second because I think you all quickly see if you're reading ahead where we're Going next, but I want us to I want us to think about when God said what he said. Right? So, verse 10, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our father Isaac, they're twins here, though they were not yet born, they're they're twins here, and had done nothing, either good or bad. Why would he do this? Why would he do this? Why would he make this statement? before either of them was born. It's not based on merit. It's not based on flesh. It's not based on the efforts of man. God's decisions are His decisions. And to show us this, to show us this, what does He do? He makes His predictions before. Now, could these predictions fail? Could they fail say that say that she's walking with twins in here and she trips on a stone. Can God's promises fail Never. I, I want to tell you, we live in a very good time in history where for where we're at, at least in the United States, we don't have to worry too much about giving birth. And my Bible's losing all the papers. We don't have to worry too much about giving birth. When, When you take your wife to the hospital, you can be fairly certain that you will come home with her. But for a large portion of human history, birthing was a very, very, very dangerous thing. Not only for the mother, but for the children as well. When God says this, let's, let's flip now. Genesis, chapter 25. So first, let's go ahead and read through. So y'all be going to put a finger over in chapter 25 of Genesis. We're going to be looking at verse 23. And I want us to look at how this verse continues on. So verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. And here's why. Here's why. Why did God make the prediction then? Why did he say what we're going to go and read then? This is the reason. In order that God's purpose of election might continue. Let me read that again. The words are there. And this is why I say let us not be afraid of them. Let us dig into them. The words are there. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, and not because of works, but because of Him who calls. Verse 12, she was told, The older will serve. The younger, and we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the full context of what's told to her. Then we're go- these are two places we're going to spend a little bit of time just thinking, and and I want to throw some things out there for you guys for homework as you go on into the end of the week to be thinking and considering um, tonight. Some of you, as we kind of end on this, some of you are going to be very, 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 very pleased. Some of you may be like, "Hmm, I didn't see that coming." Um, and, and and for both groups, I want to say, just wait till next week right? So um, that being said, let's go, and, let's go and look at the context for which Paul is here bringing these two passages of text. The last one, we're, we're, we're going to end in Romans for tonight, is going to be as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And as I read that verse, I wonder if I'm the only one that as I read a verse like that, that doesn't cause me to maybe s- stop for a sec. Right. Can, can y'all be maybe honest with me? right? As you read that verse, have any of you ever read that verse? And maybe in the back of your mind you thought, could I be? Could I be the one that he hated? And what would that mean? Here's where I want us to say, do not question the character of, of God. Instead, dig into Scripture. Right? When you hit these things, don't close it. Don't say, I'm not smart enough or I can't do it enough. Right? I want you to get that the early church was founded on men who had lesser jobs than I, whose take home pay was less than most of you. God needs not geniuses. God needs people who open His book. And this is what I wanted I always, have I not, church, have I not always been a preacher who has said, please, dig into this book. When we hit passages of text like this, that calls us to ask questions, some of which are questions that as believers should never cross our mind, like questions that question the character and nature of the God who saved us, should never cross our mind. He is good and holy. These passages of text like this tend to be the ones that cause us to be like, I'm just going to stay away from that book all together. I don't want us to do that. I want us instead to press into the text. So, at the beginning of the sermon, I told you that we would get here in order that the per- that God's purpose of election might continue. And I ask you the question: What is God's purpose of election? I've told you already. So I I told you like four times, like back to back to back to back right? Do y'all remember what I said? Does anybody rem- rem- remember it? Did Anybody have time to tweet it? It was, it was probably under 160 characters, right? I don't know. I didn't count it up. Maybe not. Do y'all remember that, that ultimately the purpose of election, God's purpose for election, is whose glory? His glory. In what? The exaltation of Christ we see who God is most clearly in the cross. God is magnified in the cross in a way that we could not even dream of in any other way. This is a crazy thing to consider, right? And as I say that, I think of all the things that had to happen for the cross to come to be. And, 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 and as I think of this, I think how humbling it is that the cross did come to be. Because do y'all, do y'all know, and this is why I harp so much, this is why I harp like I do at the inability of man to save himself. This is why I tell you time and time and time again that you did not seek God because you needed Him. You are not, would not, could not ever accomplish what He has done. Every man woman and child alive that has come from Adam. Who does that exclude? None. What hope would they have without the cross? None. None. Now I think God probably had options. Right? And I think God chose the cross. When I say that, I think God had options, right? Because God did not have to choose to save any. Ask the angels who rebelled against him if you think God owes one to stretch out his hand in mercy because he owes no one God chose to show mercy, and he chose to show mercy through the cross. The purpose of God's election is His glory in the cross of Christ. Know that. Rejoice in that you are saved today because you place your faith in Christ. Had He not sacrificed His life, had the purpose of God's plan for election not come to be, you would all be lost. And the truth is, you would not know none the different. You would be no wiser to that truth, because you would still be fixed in a Romans chapter 3 truth, where you seek not God. And you might say to yourselves, well, it seems like the world is seeking after God. They may seek after God in all these other ways, and I'll say, that's not God that's not God what we would find is man-made religion that could not so we need God's purposes we need God's plans and we land here she was told let's flip over Now to Genesis chapter 25. I want us to look at the passage where he has kind of pulled this idea out of, and I want us to look at it in full. So chapter 25, we're going to look at verse 23. So I want us to understand first also uh, 23-21, and Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. So I want us to get again that we're in this situation with Isaac, uh, and his wife here, that she cannot have children, Isaac prays, the Lord grants, and in all of this, this beautiful working together of prayer, things that are not doable, and still the working out of God to show us that it is God at every step of the way, verse 23, and the Lord said to her, so this is before they're born, the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. Two peoples from within you shall be divided, one shall be stronger than the other, the other or the older shall serve the younger. So what what is God telling Isaac and his wife here, or excuse me, Jacob and his wife here are going to become of their children? They're going to have them, they will not fail to have them, and what else? What can we conclude from this passage of text? So, yeah, so they're going to be divided. Let's not get there yet, right? So they're going to be two nations, right? So what does that mean? It's that they're going to grow up, they're going to have kids. Can God fail in any of this? See, a lot of times we like to jump really quickly to some spots but I want us to to get that for us to get to those spots we have to pass through what oftentimes seem to be mundane places along the way these two children will grow up to be nations they will have children those children will have children and it will go on and on nations will form from this and what else they shall be divided one shall be stronger than the other the older shall serve the younger. Now, what, and in what context is this speaking? Right? And here's where I would, this is the homework for the week. Go out and look at the lives of Jacob and Esau. See if, during their lifetimes as individuals, now I'm not talking about as they became nations, but their lifetimes as individuals, See if Jacob and Esau, these truths ever came to them, right? See if, see if, the, if the older was uh, a servant to the younger in their life, right? You, you may could stretch the passage of text where uh, we see him selling his birthright, but I'm, I'm, I'm wanting to tell you that's not what's going on here. That's not what he's trying to tell us here, right? God is making a bigger and broader prophetic insight than just two individual people, right? This here text is not primarily speaking of their eternal destinations, right? Do you get that as you look at this text? That as you look at what he's saying here, that he is not speaking directly to these individuals, but speaking of what would in fact come as they became nations, as they became groups of people, right? So let's read this again. Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. So you will not find this older serving the younger throughout the two individuals' lives. You will not find it. They kind of separate and go their own way for a little while because the younger's scared of the older. And you see that when they come back together because the younger's like, hey, let me, let me send him some stuff so maybe he doesn't kill me. And they get together and well, it kind of looks like they're okay. right? It kind of looks like they're brothers for a little bit there. It's not until much, 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 much later that we find this hatred having played out. Right? So if you look at the life of Esau and Jacob, you would not see a hatred of the older. Right? Will y'all do a little homework for me? Right? Go, go look and see that he does all right. He does good. But his people do not. His people do not. And here's the crazy, here's the crazy thing, is that God said it all along. All along, God prophesied these things. God showed a great love for Jacob's people. Jacob is Israel. Jacob's people grew to be Israel. It is Israel... That Paul here at the beginning of chapter nine is speaking of, as he says, says these things: they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all and blessed forever. Amen and amen. I, I I gotta say, I gotta say that Christ being a Jew. Right, we, we see in Scripture where, where we, told, we, are, we are told that in relation to our love for Christ, our love for our family should be as hatred. Multiply that by a billion when the Christ comes through your people. Multiply that by an infinite sum when you can say that the Christ is, is a Jew and not an Edomite. And what I will say is in comparison there, God loved Jacob. Oh man, it would seem as he hated his brother. And I want us to see that the language here as Paul's opening this chapter up, and this is, what, this is where I say that some of you are going to be like, man, I kind of like where that's, where that's going, and then some of you are going to be like, I did not see that coming. And then, again, I tell you, wait till next week, and I'll throw a wrench in that probably, too. So what I want us to see here is the language for which he's using these things. The older will serve the younger. This is not speaking of individual salvations. Here, those salvations were based on the promises always, always did... He saw trust in the promises of God to be fulfilled in his brother? If he did, salvation, right? Did he believe in the God who made promises? God is, here's the thing God is going to fulfill his promises with or without Mount Carmel. Do we believe that God's going to fulfill his promises? you believe that God has fulfilled them in Christ? And you can be saved. That's salvific in that belief. But you can be partakers. Jacob, in a very real way, was loved by God because his people became partakers in a way that Esau did not. As it is written, verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Let's flip now and we'll kind of, we'll close in this book. I want us to look at this scripture. Malachi, flip to Malachi. um, We're going to be in the first chapter of Malachi, the opening of Malachi. Malachi chapter 1, verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? As I open this book, and this will be another homework session for y'all, and this is not a hard one, you can do this in five minutes, right? Like it's four chapters, it's a, it's a page front and back, right? Read the book of Malachi. The book of Malachi is not a love letter to the people of the Jews, Right? Like, the, the book of Malachi is not. Like, this is the last prophetic book, and i got to say, if I was a Jew and this was the last prophetic book, I'd, I'd be left with, like, oh, man. Like, he must have got mad. He didn't, he didn't say, it's been 400 years since I heard. I, I, I get why, because this, this is not a love letter, and how does it start? Paul uses this book, when he's over in chapter 9, knowing all that he does about this short little book. Go read it. He uses this book to quote, to make this big truth known, right? The opening of this book, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? They're replying to him, he's saying, I loved you, and they're like, how? But tell me how, you, tell me how. How have you loved us? And he says, it's not Esau, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau... Have I hated? Now this is hundreds of years after both of these men are in the dirt. This is not speaking of them as individuals, but this is speaking of them and the nations that came forth from them. And read through the history, 1 Samuel First, Second Kings, read through the history of Israel, see, look for the word Edomites, look for the word Edomites. Edom is the people of Esau. Israel, time and time again, lays waste to these people. Time and time again. Like, uh, like in today's terminology, you know what they would have said? You've been served, man. <laughs> like, for real, the, Like this is what it's speaking of here. This is what it's speaking of here. I have loved you, he's speaking to Israel. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I ha- hated. I have laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Some of us, some of you, um, probably even in the presentation of this, you, you, I, I say you probably like the way that that's going. You like that it's not th- that that I'm not saying it's dealing directly with individuals' salvation, right? Like, like y'all, y'all are like man, I feel a little comfortable with this. Um, in that, I want to say, what do you think happened to all those people who he laid waste? I think of this and I think they were carrying the sword. It was man's sword. Not not this like how different could it have been if they had done what they were commanded to do. Like the promises if you go back and you look at the promises like Abraham and his descendants were to be a blessing to the nations, yet instead they destroy many of them in their path. They're destroyed by many of them along the way, not to complete ruin, but carried into captivity. Like, read this, st- like, like, there's this war waging between people. And, and this should tell us that man cannot bring this to fruition, right? Because man wages war with the sword that brings death. Not a, not a sword that cuts and brings life. That's what God's done in the gospel, right? Like, like man sets up his kingdoms and says, none of you out there because you are not of us. And God says, I'm going to lay waste to the walls and open it up to the nations. right?" And I want us to go back to Malachi where we see this Thought this I've loved you, and I want you to see and go, man. We have such a misunderstanding of the Old Testament and what was going on all along the way, right? We think that what we see in the New Testament is somehow God changing His mind, or now He's all about the nations instead of Israel, right? Like the whole time, Israel was an instrument, and here is what they thought: they thought we are a people that are an instrument, and what God was saying is, through you will come the instrument. Right? Through you, you will be blessed for eternity. It will be a Jew on the throne. Yes, but that Jew is God, and that Jew did it himself on Calvary. While you were busy building up walls, placing Him on a cross, He is the one that was breaking the walls down. He is the one that was readying this truth to go out to the nations. In Malachi... Chapter 1, verse 11. And this is, like I say, the last prophetic book before the prophets go silent, before Christ comes on the scene. Chapter 1, verse 11. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name. And a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Now I want to ask you this question. Will God fail in that? Will He fail in that? I want us to get a picture that the, that the view of what's going on in Scripture is something maybe bigger than what our narrow, narrow minds or narrow views have seen before. And that what God has done has blown wide the gates for any and all who would come to his son. Right, like, as, as many of you, probably the reason that you skip through 9, 10, and 11, or maybe put it to the side is because it's scary, because you think it's somehow limiting it. What I want us to get again and again and again, like, I, I pointed you to it last week, as we look to the end of chapter 11, the truth that we're going to land on, for God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. If it had been left up to Israel, if it had been left up to man, who would have mercy? None. None. Because we are not merciful. It is God whose character is upright. It is God's purposes and plans that cannot fail. Let us be a people who align ourselves with a God who cannot fail. Because I want to tell you that there are warnings in these chapters to come for people who would be so boastful that they think it's theirs. And I want to tell you that He does not need us to fulfill His promises. But He will use us. To do so. We can be a part of this story that's being told, or we can be the ones on the side that's been laid waste along the way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. I pray as we continue digging deeper and deeper and deeper into chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans that uh, you would prepare our hearts, prepare the soul of our souls to be made ready for the fruit that you will bear in them, as your word takes root, as the hope of the gospel is renewed in us. Lord, let us under, let us understand that that the purpose of it all is Your glory through the exaltation of Your Son. Lord, be with us as we go out this week. Use us in our workplaces, use us in our homes, use us as we're filling up our cars to get gas, as we're buying groceries at the grocery store. Lord, in every aspect of our lives, Let us be made ready. Let us understand that people's hope is not in themselves, that their hope is in the truth of Christ. And that when we find our hope, we find that our greatest desire lines up with God's purposes. That our greatest desire will be to exalt the name of Christ in all places, to all people, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. When we know you, when we know who you are, when we know what you and you alone are doing, what you have done, what you are sure to accomplish, that we would be encouraged and that we would rise up, Lord. Let your church rise.